This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, AI research scientist Julie Carpenter and human sexuality researcher Brianna Booth explore the future of human-robot sexual interaction. Considering the subject from both robot and human perspective, this event was recorded on January 24th, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Thank you for being here tonight, and welcome. Um, Thanks for having us, right? I know I'm excited to start talking about all of these interesting topics. Yeah, we'll start by just saying that Julie and I just met last week for the first time, and so we're going to be exploring these topics in real time. Um, And we're going to start by talking about um, our journeys into the respective places that we're in, the fields that we're in. Um, And... Uh, I guess I'll start. As Alex said, I'm the director of positive sexuality at Stanford right now. Um, My earliest memory that goes back to my interest in this is um, when I was in third grade and learned that fifth grade meant we were having sex ed. And I thought that that was a really exciting prospect and a reason to stay in school. (laughs) So I went to study human sexuality education. When I got, when I was in, in grad school, I realized that I, I still wasn't getting at the thing that I was most interested in doing, under, understanding what sexuality is and how we could be doing sex ed differently. Um, so I was looking at different frames that we have for how we understand what sexuality is. And there's a public health frame where we try to, where we look at sexuality as, this, as um, the cause of social ills. Or there's um, a moral frame where we think about it in terms of right and wrong. Yeah. Um, there's a medical frame where we think about it in terms of function and dysfunction. Um, there's an evolutionary frame looking at sexuality in terms of reproduction. Um, and lastly, there was a commercial frame looking at sexuality as a commodity. Um, so those are really dominant. Those are really dominant discourses that we have. Um, and I wanted. I was looking for a different way to have a, dis- a different discourse to position my work in. And so I looked at the field of positive psychology because it's the study of well-being and human flourishing. And I hoped that they had something to say about sexuality. I went and studied it, and they didn't actually have much on sexuality at all. So um, my advisor there said, "I think you need to do your own research." So I went to get my PhD and. Um, did grounded theory research, which allowed me to ask the question, what is sexuality? What is it as part of our humanity? And I got to interview people and hear their stories and derive a theory based on, on the, stories that I, uh, the, the stories that people were telling me. And so I'll just um, describe the four things, the four concepts that emerged in my research and how um, that informs the work that I'm doing right now, and also then how those concepts could be applied to our understanding of what maybe could be fundamental in artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. 
So the first thing, I mean, so when we talk about sexuality, what are we talking about? And that could be anything from like the, um, the way that we understand who we are as sexual beings in a social world, our sexual identity, um, to our desire to be close to others and the ways that we want to be close to the way that we enjoy and experience our bodies. Um, also, the meaning that we make of our experiences. So that's a, a huge part of our sexuality is, is, is what happens in our minds, the stories that we have and the way the beliefs, values, and attitudes that we have. So I, those are things that came up in, my, in, the, in, in the stories that I heard, but abstracting from them, the four things that I found were, one is that sexuality is a dynamic interplay of boundaries. Boundaries came up a lot. People discerning boundaries, feeling their boundaries, um, discovering boundaries, feeling like they were crossing boundaries or having their boundaries violated. Um, but, so, but also just the fact that we live in bodies, that we have boundaries um, in our bodies that give rise to sensation. Um, and then also interpersonal boundaries that we're all sensitive to in terms of... or we all try to be sensitive to or we become sensitive to like how close we are to one another. And then also the preset boundaries, I call them, which are the, the, the world of boundaries that we're born into based on our families, our um, religions, our cultures, um, that determine how we navigate boundaries or, or try to guide us in terms of our laws or the norms. Um, so the first, yeah, the first big concept was boundaries, and then, like, why do we do this? Why do we, why do we navigate this jungle of boundaries? We have two dominant needs, which one I found is that we have an intense need to protect, and protection can come in all these different forms, anything from um, using a condom to protect from STIs to um, trying to protect our feelings, trying to protect our reputation, trying to protect our egos, um, trying to protect ourselves from being hurt. And so we have more or less adaptive ways to protect ourselves. Um, and I, I guess the, the one other type of protection that I should underscore is um, trust and safety. Um, that that is also... A, a, the Which are also significant in human-robot sexual Ooh, interaction. cool. Yes. I want to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Bookmark for later. Yeah. Um, so the, others, the second other um, need is this intense desire to connect. And these two things, sometimes, sometimes they look like they're in contrast, but they actually can be really supportive of one another. And that connection can be, I mean, this is how, you, how, you, how we spin these words, but connection can be one of the most powerful forms of protection. And as we connect, we feel the trust and safety building so that we can open up more and we can develop more intimate bonds. We can show more parts of ourselves and allow another person to show them. So it's sort of connection can beget more connection and more protection. Um, so the last concept, so boundaries, protection, connection, and the fourth one is um, attunement. Attunement is the skill, the skill of navigating boundaries, the skill of knowing how to protect and how to connect. And that's being aware of what's going on. In, basically speaking, is what's going on inside me, what's going on inside you, and how do we find, very basically again, how do we be sensitive to dissonance and find consonance? I like the word attunement for that. I often say something similar about negotiating or yeah. negotiation, but attunement is a very good word too. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up because the, um, the attunement is like both bodily and then also social, it's like yeah. a social awareness. So the last thing I'll say is just how I apply that to the, my work that I'm doing right now, which is um, creating a new way of doing sex ed at Stanford 
and um, the the medium that I've chosen is like is is intended to enhance our ability to attune, and that is storytelling. Um, and so, both helping people share their stories, their experiences, then the process of finding meaning in our experiences, and then sharing those on stage and allowing the audience, which is 1,700 incoming freshmen, to also hear these stories and become aware of these stories as part of the human experience. Um, I'll leave it at that. Um, I, I think the, maybe the one other thing is just is like, I think at, the, at its roots, I'm teaching students both how to feel um, we do some bodily awareness exercises to be aware of how our bodies experience things, to, um, and then also how to connect, which is, can be as simple as talking to one another. That's super interesting to me because, as Brianna said, we, we only just sort of connected in the last week or so. And so to sort of discover what it is that you do and your goals, it's... Uh, it's very interesting. So it was funny because while you were talking, I hadn't intended to begin this early in my journey, but I will say that your your exposure to sex ed is so different than mine, and I think that's typical for so many people around the world. Everybody's experience of how they actually get that education is so varied and individual. I know for myself, when my mother was pregnant with my younger brother, that's when I started having the natural questions. I was about three years old. My father, who I'll talk about more in a second, was a sociologist. My mother was a clinical social worker, so they were both very comfortable with having like an age-appropriate conversation with me, and that was like my beginning, you know, when I had questions that early. Why? Mom's pregnant. How is this happening? This seems like magic. <laughs> is this going to happen every week? What's happening? <laughs> you know, I don't get the, the, Wasn't I enough? You know, it's like all yeah. of these things. What do I expect from this? So um, that's... that. So that I guess that was my first sex ed way back. And I don't think that that's too different, but sometimes people have to really think, when were my questions initially, right? And so for me, there's that obvious, well, my mother was pregnant. It was a new thing. So, But uh, getting back to my dad, I am going to start with this sort of beginning my own journey because people do say, like, how did you end up uh, talking about sexuality, robotics? How did you end up in this field that you know you've been in almost 20 years when there was nothing like this 20 years ago and I have to say that when I reflect about it my dad being a sociologist was like a huge influence um, on me because I had the privilege of access to all kinds of books about all sorts of different cultures I had the privilege though I don't think of it that way the time sitting in on his classes <laughs> when he was doing the child care mm. and I would oh, sit in the back awesome. of his classroom and listen to him lecture um, so that was definitely part of it. And he was also an early adopter of technology. So even back in the 70s when Texas Instruments was making calculators that were clearly front runners of, of modern home computing, he, um, he brought home a VIC-20 when I was older. And I was inspired to teach myself basic like a little nerd that I was and, you know, had a subscription to Basic Magazine, which was literally, for those that remember it, just basically pages and pages and pages of programming, of coding that you did by hand. I'm hearing laughter because, yes, it was tedious. It was, it was a very tedious process. Um, so I wasn't afraid of technology. It was something that was fun that I was exposed to as part of my everyday life. Um, 
I was also influenced a lot by science fiction and uh, the work of Zena Henderson, who is a woman science fiction author, who I guess her heyday was probably in the 70s. And I think her work is often not widely known, and that's really a shame. I think it's because, in part, she's a woman in science fiction at a time when there are very few women. We know to this day that's a really difficult field for women to get a hold of and fan bases or even just to get published. But um, And often her, her stories, her narrative centered around children and women. And I think that's another reason probably that her work is maybe not as widely known. But for myself as a little girl, that really spoke to me. And her stories were often about others and how people got along with others. And when I say others, I mean like sociological others, like aliens that were in their space all of a sudden. How are people going to uh, communicate? Um, or if somebody felt that they were an other to the people around them, people that were different, how do you communicate? I, that captured my imagination. Something else science fiction that captured my imagination was Close Encounters, which was a popular movie at the time. But out of all the things in that movie, what sticks out to me um, was my fascination with the scientist characters. Uh, so uh, the great character actor Bob Balaban and um, Francois Truffaut played the two scientists in the movie, if you don't remember. But they were the ones who were flying around the world trying to make sense of these alien contact, right? And the world was essentially looking to them for answers. Are they friendly? Are they not friendly? Should we prepare for war? Should we prepare for best friends? What's good? And I thought their role was just the most fascinating part of the movie, next to the special effects, right? <laughs> was just their role of discovery um, was so critical. Um, and again, turning back to my dad, I felt like being a scientist was in, within reach because I had somebody like that in my very home. So I think all of those things sort of dovetailed. And then when I got older, I was exposed to Blade Runner. I'm going to push for the director's cut. If you're a geek and you're going to be specific like that. Uh, Blade Runner brought up a lot of interesting questions to me. I nerded out on it as a film theory student, as an undergraduate, because I, was, I went into that. I was always interested in how people communicate through mediums. Film in particular at the time interested me. I never thought I was going to go into film production or Hollywood, but something about it fascinated me, and that's when I discovered Errol Morris and his documentary work. Um, Errol Morris is sort of known for uh, interweaving a bunch of narratives to get at the truth. And um, he's been a longtime favorite of mine. He also incorporates artifacts into his documentary and popular opinion and you know, very detailed work to get at a truth while it's sort of illustrating that there's no one truth and there's subjective truth and depending on your position. And I think that that really influenced me as well. And then out of all things, out of all the timing, my first job um, out of this, this film theory <laughs> undergraduate degree, my first job was in a corporate communications in the financial sector, and my role there turned into being the spokesperson for Y2K preparedness. And <laughs> if you don't remember Y2K, because uh, you're not as old as I am, <laughs> um, there was a lot of panic around the world. Um, and a lot of that had to do with trust. 
uh, and misunderstanding, misunderstanding of computers, uh, computer systems, misunderstandings on both ends, not just users, but the creators. A lot of people didn't know for sure what was going to happen to every system uh, when the dates rolled over. That was the big panic, right? So my role as a spokesperson was sort of mitigate that panic, but I was also learning about that panic and how people, the trust went beyond their institutions, like their concern about banking banks being automatically shut down down when the clock rolled over, but just their trust in the computer systems. Um, then, because I wasn't afraid of technology, I became somehow, this was also an era where people like me ended up doing web work uh, because nobody else would. <laughs> because, like, at my job, I was the only one who had any background in programming and wasn't afraid to tackle the websites. And then I started to notice continued personal relationships people were having with webs and trust and decision-making. And I came across the work of Clifford Nass and Byron Reeves at Stanford and their computers as social actors theory. I reached out to Cliff Nass in a very naive way. I was in my master's program. Um, I was living in Wisconsin at the time, and I very naively wrote to him what amounted to an academic fan letter saying, (laughs) I read your book, and, you know, these are my questions and my interests. And Cliff, from that moment on, I feel like he was always very generous with his time. He sadly, he's he's passed away a few years ago, but mentored me in many ways, um, for which I'll be forever grateful. Uh, Talking about personal relationships with technology, I realized I wasn't nuts, and there was fields of study out there. So I had started with this web-based interest, and then just coincidentally, one day I was reading them, a news article on CNN about the work of David Hansen. And uh, Hansen Robotics does the Sophia robot, which uh, a lot of people are familiar with, a highly human-like sort of female presenting robot that's been in the news a lot lately. But David actually came out of the world of Disney animatronics and had developed at that time a synthetic skin called Frubber, which I believe he still uses in his robots. It gave it a very sort of lifelike, human-like skin texture. And I saw the video of the animatronics. They were still at that time, I would call them animatronics. And they were so incredibly lifelike. And I was like, this changes everything. This is a whole, this raises all the Blade Runner questions. (laughs) This raises all of those questions about interacting with this artificial thing that's in our space that looks indistinguishable from a human or almost indistinguishable and how will we interact with it and all of those things. So that's sort of my my long and and varied path. And I guess, you know, all of these things um, also influenced my methods. Unlike you, I I use a grounded theory lens a lot. Uh, Storytelling, narrative, uh, those types of things are my data that I look for patterns and to come to conclusions. Uh, Because a lot of this is interview-based, I like to do one-on-one interviews. Um, Yeah, so it's it's really, it's a lot of narrative work and finding people's truth, but I also position myself in a way where I I feel like um, because so much of this is exploratory in in human-robot interaction, I can say it's so early because we're just starting to have robots. And, you know, we've had industrial robots, we've had military robots for a couple decades now, but we're just starting to get robots and AI and and things into our everyday 
uh, lives. And so this sort of constructed reality uh, questions, our narrative experience questions, but because my work is observational, I really try to um, describe phenomenon. That's my goal. Um, try to keep my biases away from it, but I also talk about any biases I feel might have because that's important in this kind of work as well, is to, to try to be introspective and reveal your positioning when you're describing the phenomenon. I think that's the most ethical way to do it. I'm curious um, what you observed, like what, what, what phenomena was, was this maybe the central part of your observation? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, to be honest, and uh, like, for example, my dissertation work that was turned into a book was actually nothing to do with sexuality, because in a larger way, my work is about attachment and emotion, and, and can we become attached to robots, and in what context, or AI, it doesn't even have to be robots. But my dissertation work that was turned into a book was actually about how people in the military, in a specific group, explosive ordnance disposal personnel, how they interacted with robots. And, and were they interacting with them as tools or in social ways? I was really curious. And I had narrowed it down to this group uh, of folks because uh, explosive ordnance disposal personnel were the only group within the military that had been working with robots every day for a couple decades robots in different forms. So they really had a history in place for me to look at. Um, so what did I find? I found that that specific group of people who are so highly trained, I mean, that's, I mean, it is a book, right? I wrote a book <laughs> about how they're trained, or so highly trained, very aware that these are tools. And when I talk about robots, and we should get into definitions in a second, the robots that they use sort of resemble um, their wheel, their track. They don't look human-like. They don't look animal-like. They're not designed in a way that purposely gives organic living cues. They look very machine-like. Uh, for example, when I was talking to them, they typically would go out with a couple of different models of robot. One was a packbot. It's about the size of a backpack. It's meant to be mobile. Larger model was a talon, but they both resembled each other and that they were tracked and have a, a claw. Nothing vaguely human or animal-like, totally aware that they're tools. But yet sometimes, um, in some cases, some soldiers would interact with them in social ways for different reasons. Sometimes it was just humor, but sometimes there was also a real connectedness. Um, they would name the robots often after women because it's a very male-dominated field, so they would name them after celebrities or their wives. If they were the robot operator, um, the other people on the team might take a, a, a piece of the operator's name and attach that to the robot. If it was like Sergeant John, they might call it Little John or something. It was an extension. It was seen as an extension of themselves. Uh, so it was sort of a spectrum. But I, what I said from that was I called it the robot accommodation dilemma, which is when you know that it's an artificial entity, you're very aware of it, but you're sort of negotiating because in some situations, things like, Loneliness, being separated from family, being under the high-stress environment when you're deployed, or even just, just being at a base, you know, a forward operating base, things like that, can put you in an emotionally vulnerable position. Things that can cause attachment or, you know, that are factors of emotional attachment are a sense of having history with something or an object or a person, an entity, um, 
uh, having a sense of safety, which was something you said before, a sense of anxiety when that thing is not near you because it gives you that sense of safety. And so these are the very human emotions that are intertwined with different parts of our systems, you know, our, uh, that it's almost, it seems like it's almost impossible in some ways for us to not interact with robots sometimes in some social ways, but it's really context dependent. You might work in a factory every day with an industrial robot and never have the feeling that you should be social with it. Um, however, uh, often, at least right now, a lot of industrial robots um, traditionally have been static. They don't move a whole lot, maybe an arm or something. It's only more recently when you see like Amazon picker robots or something that move around. Movement's a really important thing when something moves in our space, when it's embodied. Like you said, embodiment is important. When it moves in our space, we tend to attribute um, autonomy and agency internal states to it. So we react to them differently. And I, so I thought what you said about embodiment and physicality were really interesting. Yeah, well, I'm curious how the attachment then goes into like sex robots and how your work around attachment. Oh, yeah, let's led get you. to sex robots, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> let's get to the sexy stuff. <laughs> so actually, we don't really know. And, and so I, I guess we should maybe go back to the definitions, right? So when we talk about sex robots, what is it we're saying? What, what comes to mind when I say sex? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've just been – artificial intelligence in the realm of sex and sex robots have kind of only just been in my peripheral vision for the last several years. Um, and I've been curious about it mostly in terms of the question of what is sexuality and as part of our humanity and what would that – how would that um, – be relevant to AI, but um, w when I think of a sex robot, I think of, um, I think Kate Devlin's term summarized it the best for me, I hope it's not offensive, but pornified fembots. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> I think uh, that's fair. And, that, yeah. and that's what I imagined, something yeah. um, like, like uh, exaggerated features um, and... Yeah, not looking totally real, but like close, like dolls, and yeah. um, and then I guess I yeah, I think that's maybe the extent of it. Yeah. So Kate Devlin, who I consider like the world's authority in in many ways about uh, human sexual interactions with robots and and our whole sexual side with AI. Yeah, I think that that's a fair thing. Kate and I often agree um, that I'm so I'm not surprised that that's the mental model that we have. And some of that mental model is based on probably narratives that we have in our society, popular narratives. But you know, the idea of people falling in love with artificial others is of course goes back thousands of years probably since the the first people you know really had an awareness um you know ovid and pygmalion there's folk tales you know um in jewish folklore we have golems um there's uh frankenstein pinocchio people have different kinds of attachment relationship when they create life uh adam and eve God and Adam, right? So there's, uh, we have all these creation myths. Often in our modern narratives, even in the antique or archaic narratives, it's about men creating women or men falling into fem falling in love with these feminized objects like Ovid, Pygmalion, those sorts of things. 
So those have been the do- the dominant narratives. And when you even think about recent movies and literature, it's rare that there's like a male sexualized robot. A one that comes to mind is in the movie AI, and that was some years ago now. Um, Jude Law's character. Uh, Gigolo Joe, I think it was called, uh, you know, and he was designed, it was very specific in the movie to please women. Um, but other than that, there are so many instances in popular movie narratives. And, and now that sex robots are sort of coming to fruition, shall we say, that they're on our close horizon, we're seeing more in popular news. We seem to be relying on that narrative an awful lot. There's st- news stories, I, I, I feel like, work off that assumption that we have that mental model and rarely explore beyond that. They don't bring up the fact that it doesn't have to be an exaggerated, you know, often westernized, idealized version um, of a feminine body that's meant to appeal to a cisgendered, straight, man or marketed that way um, that there's all sorts of variations and spectrums and possibilities and they don't even have to look human like they could be abstract and then when you think about sex toys uh, which billion dollar industry billions of dollars worldwide so many sex toys some are built on replicating human like images and you think of the vibrators a very common example that's only You know, it can come in all kinds of shapes, sizes, abstractions, human-like, you know, not. So uh, there are lots of possibilities and dynamics. And I think that that's important to sort of bring out. There's a spectrum of possibility. what defines, so we know that what we're talking about, what defines the bounds of a sex robot? So given that we have this stereotype um, and the sort of maybe a limited model of possibilities based on that stereotype, Or like the people who are making these, um, like what what? I, I remember the other day you said that I, I I don't know if you said this exactly like this, but that there were there isn't such a thing, or we're not there yet, or something about like that something about sex robots that I needed to understand. Oh <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot we all need to understand, but I think one of them is uh, that we're really in this exploratory phase, the sex robots that out that are, are out there. So how do I define a sex robot? Let me start with okay. that. A robot that's either been designed to give human sexual pleasure in some way through fantasy, interaction, whatever that may be, or if somebody projects a sexuality onto a robot. So it doesn't need to be, to, because a lot of our sexuality is about projection, mm-hmm. And our expectations and hopes and wishes and desires for the other, right? And the same holds true, in my opinion, for sex robots, because humans have a great capacity to sexualize almost, you know, anything. anything. That's something, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, what's the internet rule? Somebody can shout it out at some point, but you know, it's like somebody's going to find it's, something yeah. attractive, right? And, yeah, you um, can find and especially porn when for you're it. Tra- right. And when you're talking about something that's human-like, and and again, if it has social abilities or we can project that onto it, some people will find it sexualized just by its nature. The design cues. Okay, so um, designed to give sexual pleasure or an object that we can project 
sexual a robot that we can project oh, that on and I, I, you know and this is like then you go down this wormhole of definitions because there's no one universally accepted definition of what a robot is so i would just sort of loosely say it's a physically embodied computer system that can interact with its environment in really complex ways and similarly AI and and again you know you can poke all kinds of holes in that it's unfortunate we don't have a really but there's also a lot of robots out there like i said there's you know we're looking at you know sex robots coming down the road there's industrial robots military so it, there's all sorts of definitions for what a robot can be. Um, and I think the other point you were getting to is what is really out there. So we're hearing a lot in the news, and I'm glad the discussions like this, are, we're having them because you have to start thinking about people's physical safety, their emotional safety, policy legislation, uh, social interactions. You know, people have a lot of concerns, too, that people are going to interact with sex robots one way and then transfer those behaviors onto other people. And it's so many complicated issues. But really what's out there right now are sort of glorified sex dolls. So, um, and what I mean by that is let's start with arguably the gold standard which would be by Abbott's Creations or uh, was it uh, what uh, Real Doll X, Real Robotics? I forget the exact name of the company. Robotics, I think it is, uh, with Matt McMullen here in California, and he has come out with Harmony, and he's about to come out with Henry, a male mm-hmm. version. So it's, it should be noted that he that Matt began in with a sex doll company. That's what he designs and manufactured. And then he wanted to incorporate AI. So with Harmony, it's uh, it's really app-based for Android. It's a Bluetooth-enabled brain, brain, right? Uh, and you interact with it in a text-based way. And I believe that she... <laughs> I'm using the, the Raptor air quotes, which, you know, obviously you can't see on the pair podcast, but that she, because it's giving feminized design cues, um, has some elements you can customize. In fact, and this is sounds grotesque, but you can actually peel the faces off. <laughs> They're magnetized, you know, and interchange them. Um, but the head is, I believe, mobile and can turn their life size approximately around five feet, around 100 pounds. So they've got sort of that heft and weight, but they're not bipedal movement. They're not articulated movement. It's really sort of a sex doll that's app-enabled and sensor-enabled that you prop up and dress how you want. And the AI that it uses is also very limited. It doesn't have machine learning. And what I mean by that is it's not really going to learn right now uh, about you and what pleases you or doesn't please you. It's As I understand it right now, this app is still a bunch of pre-programmed chatbot-like algorithmic so choices. the opportunity for attunement isn't there. Right. Yeah. And like for mutual attunement. Right. No, and so it's 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 a very one-way thing, and that's something we have to keep in mind. There's obviously, clearly, even people who claim to love and have great affection for these sex robots, we'll call them that, even though they have limited abilities right now. Um, yeah, they're really complicated narratives people put on, but it's clearly it's one way. We don't have that sort of intelligent 
robots out there yet that are returning anything like what we would recognize as human-centered emotion. They, And again, in my opinion, this is a philosophy, but I don't think they ever can, no matter how sentient they get. They're still robots. Their senses are different than ours. Our bodies are different than ours. They're always going to know the world through a robot way of being, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. Yeah, I think on that point, um, uh, before I looked into this, I had a pretty narrow idea and like a cautiousness for what would happen and that maybe, I mean, there's a lot of cultural commentary right now about people retreating into tech or um, and and or retreating from intimacy, um, like Kate Julian wrote in the Atlantic article um, a couple months ago, uh, and I think that I was worried. So she talks about just the rise in solo sex, masturbation, and um, uh, like well, and a lot of this I just learned was called it's called first wave digisexuality. Okay. So the um, uh, dating apps. Internet porn, um, forget what else, but basically the the these things that actually are pretty familiar. Oh, sexting. Um, there's one other thing, but things that we would all find like pretty familiar and and normalized and incorporated into our social landscape. Um, but she, so she writes about <clears throat> the sex recession, people having less sex, um, but so the existence of so the rise in, in solo sex, the the prevalence of dating apps that are mostly frustrating for people, um, uh, hookup culture, um, bad sex, and then just like this general inhibition around sex, which I think of as sort of like an erotophobia or a discomfort with our own bodies. And so therefore, just like this retreat. And so the retreat, the, I, I just uh, imagine that sex robots would just be one more way to retreat or one more way to, to ha- avoid the messiness of human interaction. And there was something that you said that I made me think of all this. Um, I guess just my own cautiousness and oh, so. But then I started to think like, well, what could the positives of this be? And what? And you know, if I think about it in my own work, well, what could help? Like, how could AI or sex robots help um, in the in the in the things that I'm trying to teach or the things that I think would help human interaction? And that it's not just like people. Um, having their own experiences, but even people having their own experiences, um, the idea of someone projecting fantasy onto a, a, a sex robot, I thought, well, maybe there's something interesting about that and um, valuable for people to explore their erotic mind. Um, like, you know, just one more thing in this panerotic universe that we live in that anything can potentially be a turn on. And... Um, and so just like that as an avenue. Um, yeah, robots won't judge you. Right. And people find that very appealing. Uh, right. Some people so find like, that very appealing. It's kind of like an extension of fantasy. Yeah. Like a, and, and, and so to get to play in that space doesn't seem inherently bad or dangerous or, or wrong or concerning. Um, and I, I, I don't know how to make moral judgments on these things anyway, but just as like my 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 operating premise going into this is like, well, would it, does it detract from human, human relationships? Cause like, can these things exist? Can they be supportive, mutually supportive of one another? Um, but then, so then switching over into human, human interaction, how could AI or sex robots play a role 
In- oh, yeah. Because, again, I think that we also, and, and I, you and I will probably both do this throughout the conversation, we often default to this model of this binary. And I think that even beyond that, there's this idea of the people who are currently early adopters of the idea of sex robots. We have this image of very lonely, often men in basements alone <laughs> with right. these sex robots in a really sort of creepy way. And uh, <laughs> that's the image a lot of us get, in, uh, again, in popular narratives. And I would say that people uh, who are these sort of first wave have a lot of different motivations. I mean, and one, to get back to the binary thing, isn't that they're necessarily uh, a man seeking a female-presenting dinoid, is the term, or or robot, uh, that it can be involved in a relationship with more than one partner. I mean, the human-human relationship, it can be brought in. As a, as a vehicle for fantasy or play uh, as well. It can be an option. Some people, of course, are just attracted to the idea of technology, uh, of being with a robot specifically. Sure, that's a preference for some people. But I see it more as eventually, as people discover these different ways of designing robots, of interacting with robots, um, that it's just going to become an option. And for some people, it may become meaningful emotionally, and for other people, it just may be a sex toy, sex fantasy option. And also, we have to keep in mind, as these technologies advance, it's very possible that the sexual persona, let's say, of a robot just might be one facet of a robot that you interact with uh, in your home every day, the equivalent of sort of having parental controls on a robot. And and it just responds in particular contexts in a sexual way with particular people. But it has other abilities and functions in the home. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of it's mind blowing. Even every time I say it, I think, "Wow, that's way in the future." Because it it is way in the future for a lot of reasons, including cultural acceptance and policy and regulation. Because that kind of brings us to like the whole idea of I want to talk about consent because I think okay. when we start talking about consent, that that's going to lead us into the idea of trust and mm. data and surveillance and things. Mm. So Ooh. tell me, what do you think about consent? Because human-human consent is clearly different yeah. than human-robot consent. What do I think about consent? Um, well, <laughs> uh, it's 100% necessary. It's a, like the absolute foundation for which any sexual interaction can happen um, uh, legally and um, uh, uh, mutually satisfyingly. Um, when I think about consent, though, I think about it as a rule and um, and that that's really important for people to know what the rules are. Um, and it also, it doesn't take us very far, though. Consent is a pretty low level, low, low, low bar to reach. So I sort of think about it from if there's negative 10 to zero, like if we consent is at zero and the thing that i'm most interested in is connection and so and connection is where we get from zero to plus 10 um so the absence of violation is is then that's how i would think about what consent begets or gets where that gets you is um the absence of violation but it doesn't necessarily get you connection and that's a whole different set of skills to connect with someone. So you can follow a rule or you can, and there's the art of connection. Those are almost two different um, Right, but it's so important, right, that these are two systems that are 
used together in full understanding. And as we start to have these very public and more recent dialogues about consent, we're finding whole new ways of of talking about human-human consent, right, and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, and things that in the past we thought were implicit and making Mm -hmm. them explicit so people can communicate. But something very different in the human-robot dynamic is if you – who are you asking consent from when you ask a robot, right? Right. Are you asking that robot's persona? Are you talking to the company that made the robot? (laughs) Is it a legal disclosure kind of thing, you know, like uh, updating a privacy policy, uh, you know? Yeah, terms of use. How how does that work? And and I don't have an answer for that. I don't think any of us really do right now, and it's something that we're still in the – discovery process. So there's the play acting narrative of consent in a human robot interaction. What I mean by that is playing as if the other person is a human and maybe asking back and forth or explaining rules verbally or saying what pleases you, what won't please you, even a safe word, right? Uh, but again, who are you asking consent from? And is that important in human robot interactions? Because that's also another thing when you talk about uh, transferring, people are very concerned about transferring behaviors um, from a human-robot interaction model, especially sexually, and transferring that into human-human interaction models in their everyday lives. And I think, again, that that falls back on this very negative idea that immediately it's going to be about men exerting power over female-presenting robots and then transferring that uh, into the public. So we we talked about that briefly. What are what are your thoughts? Because you said you had experience, sort of about this transfer of behaviors from medium to real life when we were discussing porn. Right. That, I mean that I've I mean I've both read about it and heard about anecdotally. Um, it just that you you gave it a nice way of putting it, but like mislearning, mislearning through misrepresentation. Um, so learning how what what is how do you pleasure a partner and like if you learn that through porn that might not actually transfer and so it's um or like what are the mechanics of sex well in porn it looks different than in real life um so that's yeah i think that there's also i I think something else we had talked about in my mind you're the expert in, in this particular area but i think that some of that also comes from the fact that porn has changed, whereas it used to very clearly be actors to the laughable point, right? You know, we all can make fun of the, you know, boom, chicka, wow, kind of, you know, you know, overacting, ridiculous porn scenarios. You know, there's the pizza delivery guy kind of thing versus the popularity of the real or people who are saying that they're real people in real situations. And I think that that can give people that false sense that if these are people just like me and this is how they do it this is how it's supposed to be right. done right do you get that sense uh, yeah absolutely and i mean i think this is where like the absence of sex good sex ed becomes the most glaring because if that's if porn is the primary way that people are exposed to what sex is and how it looks and how it works then it's going to be a gross in inade- grossly inadequate in terms of real life education Yeah, and that sort of gets back to uh, the gamification Mm. of sexuality, Mm. at least in human-robot interaction. That's something that comes up a lot related to consent. It's in the harmony 
app. Um, there is a person named Unicole Unicron who has an Indiegogo set up for a female robot-centered or, or brothel. <laughs> You know, where it's consent-based, and by that you mean that the interactions, you have to actually sort of get please, again, I'm going to use the air raptor quotes, please the robot and get permission to go to, let's say, the next level. You know, I feel like a, a child saying first base, second base. There, it is that gamification. You know, if you, you ask permission to kiss the robot and the robot might say, no, I want to talk first. Or something, and you know, on the one hand, there's there's this tension because you go, okay, people are concerned that you're going to live these behaviors without consent with the robot, mislearn, transfer those behaviors. But then, when you build these consent models in, people say, well, it's gamifying it, and then you're going to transfer those behaviors. And I think that people think of gamifying automatically as a pejorative word. We talked about this too, but in my mind. Not always, because flirtation and seduction require that sort of negotiation that we often refer to as a game, right. rightly or wrongly. I would think of it as like an erotic dance, and that's where the boundary, the play of boundaries come in, that we're sort of, that flirting and seduction is 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 feeling where boundaries are and sort of, um, and testing them and maybe like going an inch over in order to find out like and the, the, not in a violating way but in like a te- just a testing way like where are you and do you want to keep connecting so it's that back and forth and so there is i mean we're getting feedback in a way that could be perceived like a game so let's uh, relate it to that yeah. i think in consent obviously with uh human human connections uh if you wanted to let's say film your partner mm-hmm. right it's polite and ethical to ask Right. When you're with a robot, let's say a big corporation builds this robot, right? They become a somewhat common thing down the road. How do you, where are the boundaries going to be about the data that they collect, about the surveillance that's involved? Because if you want actual machine learning, and again, by that I mean where the robot can learn about the things that are going to please you in order to please you, give you that sexual pleasure, that's the goal of the functionality of the robot, it has to have some fairly deep learning about you and about context and communication and all sorts of things. And that means it's going to gather a fair amount of and store a fair amount of data. Big company makes it. What are they doing with it? We don't know yet. There's, we don't have policies and clear legislation in place. So then you start maybe getting, think about how sensitive that data is. I mean, for some of us, that's the most sensitive things, our sexual desires, our fantasies, our naked bodies. We're vulnerable physically and emotionally. And who's, who's watching? What data is being gathered? How is it being used? You start getting targeted ads maybe popping up at work <laughs> that aren't the most appropriate. I mean, have people thought that far ahead? Probably not in a lot of cases. You know, um, companies can be very product-centered, as we mm-hmm. all know, without thinking of long-term ramifications because right. we want to get products out there and people using them. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, I, it's... Um I don't. I. I couldn't. <laughs> it seems like a really important thing to consider, and and these the, those are like the ethical and legal questions that would need to be sorted out, but that pose pose a lot of problems, um, just in terms of legality, not being able to keep up with the technology and the complexity of these questions. 
Yeah, it's I mean, it a, just seems very delicate. Yeah, it's a it's a hornet's nest, and it really involves bringing in um, a lot of different uh, professions, right? I mean, legal, ethical, and you know what? I'm really glad, in some ways, even. I'm going to say as somebody who's done military robotic research as well, in some ways, the sex robot research has even pushed farther (laughs) the public understanding that there needs to be, and this might be sad or good, I'm not sure which, but more than the military research, that we have an understanding. We need to start bringing social sciences more, in my opinion, as an advocate, of course, I'm a social scientist, so I'm going to say that, but more into robot development for these reasons. We have to start thinking about things beyond how they function. Do they function? Yes, no. Beyond user experience, how do they work in the world and what are the long-term ramifications? But I think having said that, because we discussed so many sort of scary things, maybe we should start talking about like our positive hopes for the future. I'd love to. (laughs) How do Do you see? What do I see as the possibilities? Um, There's... I guess, I mean, from the, just the the things that I've been thinking about is the access for certain individuals, depending on the need and the context, um, the possibility for harm reduction, um, and the, the, I, this goes into spaces that I can't, again, like the ethical con- considerations, I don't know, but um, like treatment for sex offenders. Um, oh, that's an interesting topic. Can I stop right there? Yeah. I, I, I want to talk about that because that comes up, and I, it's a very valid topic. So treatment for sex offenders, in particular pedophiles, molesters, people who molest, um, have all sorts of aggressive sexual tendencies. And a question that comes up is, will this – can they do sex can robots? Can I do a quick the, correction on that, that pedophiles don't necessarily have aggressive tendencies? That's but, but, true, oh, and they're also not necessarily people that – are considered molest. Yeah, right, so right. Yes, it's the different. Just yes, the important distinction. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, will sex robots have a therapeutic value? We don't know, it, and we certainly don't know in those arenas mm-hmm. for sure. I believe that sex robots can have a place with a human trained advocate in place, and by that I mean like a clinical psychologist, a social worker, somebody who works with the robot and the participant, the, the the person being treated or going through a treatment, um, if it was in a guided, highly supervised way, there might be some benefits because we see, and, and I, I'm not even talking about pedophilia, I'm talking about all sorts of different sexual dysfunctions or even just anxiety interacting with humans because uh, people we know can have really positive reactions to robots just because they don't judge Right, And when we're talking about our sexuality, we're often concerned about how people judge us. So I do think there will be some possible therapeutic value, but we don't really know what that looks like. Right. So I guess that's in in the realm of possibilities. Um, I also think about uh, aiding self-understanding, like that this can be an avenue or a space for exploration, um, both psychologically and and, um, physically. And I'm curious how sex robots could potentially um, support, well, I, I thought it was interesting just this idea that it doesn't need to be a human form that is in the sex robot, but actually maybe more sensory-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that sensory stuff could actually bring us into a deeper embodiment, a deeper, and cultivate our felt sense, the intelligence of our felt sense. 
um, and also be more more have more pleasure in it and anything from moving from localized pleasure because oftentimes we think about sex in terms of genital touching but and we leave out the rest of our senses the rest of our bodies um, so just ways that that could be brought in um, and then also this is maybe like at the base of this talk itself is like how sh- um, attitudes cultural attitudes might shift around sex more generally and and our the the, the fact that we don't have pleasure as part of our sex education right now is kind of horrifying in terms of what, like, what are we doing when we're, like, how do, how do, I, I've... It's I've very reproduction-based, at yeah, least as I and recall. It, and, and very, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, and the, the safety of, yeah. of, of yeah. sexually transmitted infections. And, but if we, if we want people to have good sex, um, then pleasure is like the absolute foundation of, the, I mean, is, is, is like a key piece of all that. So, um, but all of this sex robots talk brings up our, our sexual anxieties about like what could happen. Something's different on the landscape. And I, I felt that myself until I went in here and started similarly to my own study of sexuality. It's like, once you go in and familiarize and humanize and, and get acquainted with these things, and then it starts to be less scary. But sexuality, I describe always as the one of the most potent and vulnerable parts of being human. And so it, it requires a care, but it also has so much, there's so much richness in it. And and so it, similarly with this topic, like our ability to, to go into it and see what's possible and be open to... Um, to this, like it helping us access this part of our humanity could be uh, central in sh- starting to shift attitudes because, yeah, we're still quite entrenched in negative, um, I- negative attitudes, but also I will say superficial attitudes oh, yeah. that we're caught in this continuum of like thinking of sex as a dirty, dangerous, shadowy. Thing that's in the gutters. It's funny you say like, dirty and dangerous <laughs> because that we say in robotics often that robots are created to do the dirty and oh dangerous gosh. and repetitive jobs. Oh, I never heard that. Oh, <laughs> so wow. there you go. Oh my gosh. So and then and, but then and then I think our shift like often we've gone from we've actually shot from negative to overly superficial where it's it means nothing. It's um, that it's not. Uh, it's not important to us or it doesn't it, it it's just for advertising it's just for it's just for like um superficial play it's for advertising it's i mean it's like sex and sex robots could easily look like it's in the superficial bucket but we need more thoughtful development not only to have to go from negative to positive but superficial to something more more dimensional multi-dimensional part right. of us and the, the first wave again of people right. that are even reaching out to the people that are the small group of people that are investigating making sex robots have almost universally declared that they want some sort of companionship element you know they used to call it in sex work the girlfriend experience again to go back to that male female sort of dynamic but again going off the positive thing too i want to talk about it as a medium that can be teleoperated it can you know there are so many ways that sex robots could potentially be involved again as is an option mm-hmm. with people in all sorts of committed relationships if you're not thinking or if you're thinking of it as a meaningful other as somebody that is a significant other as opposed to a generalized other and uh, going back to the uh, you know what i'm going to end with a little anecdote 
here, sort of. I, I, I hope it's interesting. We'll see, I guess. So when I started doing this research and I started speaking to some of these early adopters, um, um, I think with almost all of them um, had very rich narratives they project onto, I'm going to say sex dolls, because most of these people didn't have anything robotic in their lives. They're hoping to be able to afford the sex robots when they're out there more commonly. But right now they live with sex dolls and consider them significant others in their lives and have what they feel are meaningful relationships and these narratives that they project onto the the dolls and live with them. And, you know, as much as you try to remove yourself of bias and be a social scientist and go in, I was, like, really curious when I started talking to them. I had the same bias as other people have. You know, what are what are these people going to be like when I, you know, I start talking? To, and actually, some of the most erudite, open, um, considerate, uh, willing to share their time, their thoughts, you know, their why they chose this path, et cetera. So I became very comfortable with, with one person in particular, Dave Cap, who lives, some of you may have seen on different TV shows, documentaries about people who live with sex dolls. He's been very out there about his, his life. And he has Twitter accounts for his different, um, his, uh, he calls them synthetic, his synthetic lover, synthetic spelled with a K at the end. And he operates the Twitter accounts for them, of course. And I had a, a friend over, my friend Sandy. And as we often do when Sandy and I get together, we're spending a few days together, she was doing some work next to me. I was doing some work because we're always married to our work. And at one point she said, what are you doing? And I realized what I was doing was having a direct message conversation with a sex doll. <laughs> because I was talking to one of Dave Katz's synthetic lovers and not thinking anything of it at that point because at that point it had been normalized to me. This is the persona that he uses to communicate. And I didn't realize till, and then I kind of laughed. It was like, I am typing to a sex doll. You know, but you know, we can laugh because it's still unusual, but I think over time what we're going to find is more people have meaningful connections and it will, in some ways, in some instances, have that normalcy. We will accept that sometimes these artificial others can have a lot of emotional meaning to people. And we'll respect that. And I guess that's sort of yeah. what I hope. Yeah, for, for diversity future. of human yes, sexual expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope well, that's a good note to sort of maybe turn to some questions. Yeah, thank you for being in this conversation. Oh my God, Brianna, it's us. been such a delight to meet you and work with you the last week or so. Yeah, thank you. you too. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.